All right. And I think we are live. Yes, although I have cat hair all over me. Thank you all very much for coming by and hanging out with us today on our newest episode of our Merged Worlds Dungeons & Dragons story stream. Um, this is episode 13, which, um, you know, I've told this story many times uh, to friends and such, and I find that each time it took longer to tell. I never got to go in quite as much detail as I'm getting to go into on these streams. So, since each stream has been an average of two hours or more, there's been so far more than 25 hours worth of story in the first 12 episodes. Um, and I'm not even close to halfway at this point. So, there is still a lot of story left. So, <laughs> I didn't realize quite how long this was going to take to tell it all. And then, when I get to the end of what has already happened, I'm already working on what would happen next. So there'll be more story that didn't even, didn't even ever actually get played. Um, I always knew where a lot of the stories were going to go and I never got to develop them or move them on like that. So um, it'll be kind of cool and exciting to be able to experience those new first-time tellings of the stories with you folks when we get there. Uh, so again, this is episode 13. Thank you very much for coming by. Uh, if you enjoy yourself tonight, smack the like button. But more importantly, be sure to hit the subscribe button. That way you can see all my video streams and tutorials as they come out. Hello, Seth. Welcome, welcome. Thank you for coming by. Uh, so we'll give it a couple minutes for everyone to show up. We always, I always like to give a few minutes here. And we'll talk a little bit about what happened last week. Um, uh, hello, James. Hey, welcome, welcome. So, I guess i uh, begin with just a, a recap of what happened last week, and then before we jump into the, the story this week, it's a little bit of update on uh, some things changing with the channel. Hey, Neon's here. Welcome, sir. So, um, yeah, last time we left off, um, our four heroes, Dandy, Darsh, Mercy, and Artemis, had been hanging out in Paxawall. They had... Uh, purchased their own home uh, and started to live there. Made friends with a neighbor lady named Molly who makes them pies. Darcy's a big fan. Uh, Seth, I'm sorry your internet's went well. And hello, Teresa, and hello, Ian. Thank you very much for coming by today. Uh, so they had had a house. They built up. They had their own little place. Had a little secret room in the basement. Um, and they'd been given these magical rings by uh, Lamia who was one of the head mages of the uh, mage tower in Paxawal. And the Rings of Central Teleportation. It's an obsidian-looking obelisk. Stands, uh, for those of you audio, I guess I say about, was that, seven, eight inches high. Uh, the rings go down about halfway. You can take them off, put them on your finger. And the ring will teleport you to wherever that obelisk is. Uh, so it will not teleport you away. It'll only teleport you home. And it was given to each of the characters as a way to help them speedy around a little bit and get back to Paxiwal since they kept trans traveling where they were. So they hid the obelisks in the hidden room they'd built down into the under-basement area of their cellar area. And they had that to uh, as a new way to get home. Soon after that, they heard of uh, some military or some type of uh, bandits, if you will, were attacking some of the, the towns on the northern edge of Paxiwal. Um... Some of the villages have been ransacked, there have been murders, and so on. Uh, so Paxwell was sending up a um, 
military group to go up there and hopefully deal with them, and our heroes went along with them. And so they traveled north, uh, tracked the army, if you will, or the, the brigands to a uh, brigands to a forest on the edge of the mountain range. Our heroes snuck into the uh, mountains and into the forest themselves, tried to infiltrate, see what was going on, and inside they ended up finding the leader of this group was none other than Zarin, uh, who was previously a gnome mage. Well, he still is. He was a gnome mage, but he was previously one of their friends and allies, part of their group. Uh, but he had taken the fire gem in the aftermath of the battle, and the big battle where the Citadel fell, and had literally merged it into his empty eye socket where his eye had been burnt away and had become really a, a fire mage at that point. Uh, they managed to fight and defeat him, gaining themselves their third stone, for those who are keeping track. Uh, Zoltan had given them the life gem at the beginning. They had gotten the water gem from the guy on the island that they defeated. And now they have the fire gem from Zarin. Um, so after that was defeated, they also got... Um, he had one of their chests of holding, which is a very powerful magic item they've been given very early on. Uh, and they were very excited to get a hold of that again because it becomes way useful. Uh, in many situations. And with that, they returned back to Paxawal, and that's kind of where we called it a day. Uh, so that's where we're going to start today. Before I jump into that, though, a couple quick things to just touch on. Um, I have lights in these bookshelves. I wired those all up today. Those arrived. They're part of all of the uh, upgrades that I'm going to be doing over the next week or so. Went and picked up the motherboard today. The case came... I am now only missing a couple parts to be able to start the build of the new PC. Uh, I'm just waiting. I'm waiting on the second monitor, but I'm, I'm that I, I can. If I get that after the build, I'm not worried about that. I've got some new lighting coming in, which is going to definitely make this all look better. Um, and then I need the actual power block, power brick itself. So once that arrives later this week, uh, if all goes well, this Thursday we are going to be doing a long. Draven builds a PC stream, so hopefully you'll be interested to come by for that. Uh, hello, the MT. Welcome for, welcome, welcome for coming by today. Um, so yeah, we're gonna hopefully have that. If all the parts are in, really at this point, all I need is that the power source. Once I get it, I've got everything to build the PC, and uh, as long as it's here by Thursday, that's going to be our goal for Thursday, and then we will have a fat PC, and a lot of things are going to start looking and being a lot better on the channel. So I'm excited to be able to give some better content that way. Um, another thing, the uh, membership program uh, here on the channel. Uh, if you're not sure what that is, on my YouTube channel, if you click the join button, it'll show you all the different perks that comes with the membership, uh, which, speaking with the community and talking about different suggestions, we've decided to call the, the membership program is Draven's Dragons. So if you see anybody in the chat with a green or a blue name, that means they're part of the Dragon program. They're getting all those different perks. Uh, and I thank them and very much for participating in that program. Uh, it does help me be able to do a lot of different things and on stream and, and provide things like our Sky Factory 4 server, which is unlimited access if you're one of the Dragons programs. So that would be very cool uh, if anyone's interested in checking that out. But that being said, I think I'm ready to jump on into the story today. Uh, let's see here. Uh, Ian says... the. Lights look great, not as shiny as your eyes, but great. <laughs> Thank you very much. Actually, they could be... i got a remote for them. I can make them change colors. There are like 12 different colors they can be. I can have them strobe. There's a whole bunch of uh, little stuff. But I kind of mixed them with the 
blue because I wanted to kind of match the background there. And like I said, it's they're a little bright in the center. I'm gonna I'm gonna fade them out a little bit more once I get the other lighting in. And once there's more light coming this direction, it'll offset that a little bit. For those of you who are listening to this on audio on iTunes, we're just talking about lighting that I've put in some bookshelves behind me to be able to show off some of the stuff on there, which I'm gonna replace with cooler stuff here in the near future as well. So watch for that. Actually, I've got a uh, Dungeons and Dragons Funko coming in the mail. I ordered for myself. Uh, if anyone's familiar with any of the Baldur's Gate stuff, Minsk and Boo are on their way, and I should have them by the end of this week as well. And that's a little, little something I've wanted for a while, so I'm pretty excited to get that. But we'll jump into the story. Um, instead of traveling all the way back, the couple of weeks it takes to get all the way from the northern edge of Paxwall's lands, our uh, heroes did use their rings of central teleportation for the first time and teleported directly back to their house. Uh, which was very, very convenient. Uh, Dandy basically un unhooks all the traps and lets them get out of there because she trapped the heck out of that room in case somebody found it while they were gone. They managed to get out of there okay, and they take a letter from the general that they'd been with um, to the head of the military here in Paxwell, let them know what, what happened and what was going on. Um, and basically that they had kind of saved the day. There's really no mention of the gem. That's something that the PCs have kind of kept to themselves. Um, but it is something that they're immediately going to tell at the temple. After they have gone and... They, all, they didn't all go at once. Um, Mercy and Artemis, they went to the temple, and Dandy and Darsh went to the uh, head of the military to let them know what was going on there. In the temple, Mercy and Artemis let them... let uh, They meet with Sister Mera, again go over what happened there, uh, the unfortunate that they had to defeat, if not kill one of their old allies and someone who they had considered a friend for a very long time. Uh, but they are happy to say that they were able to get the gem, so they have three in their possession. Um, Mara lets them know that they've made some um, advancements in trying to figure out where potentially the next gem is, um, and asks that after they get some rest, take a day or so, come back, they should hopefully have some more information from them here in the very near future. PCs are excited. Excellent. Because, again, they, they want to get all of these things, so hopefully they can get home. It's been years since they've been back on their original worlds, if you will. And while they're becoming more and more at home with their friends and on this new world, a lot of them still have that, I miss family, I miss you know my world. The, the overall goal is not lost, although sometimes it does fade a bit to the side, as day-to-day -day life and adventures does kind of take over. So said, homesickness, yes, they get that from time to time. That's correct, Sage, thank you very much. A little bit of homesickness now and again. Uh, not all the time, but it happens. In many ways, as they're building their new home here, there are times after they're on their adventures when they get back to Paxwell that they kind of feel like they're home-ish, but not home, if you know what I mean. Like, they, they're there, and they're like, okay, cool, this is where I'm living. Almost like if you're on a long trip and you're staying at a, a house that you're renting or uh, uh, maybe a hotel room, something, you know, that's home for the night. It feels, okay, I'm back to where I'm starting from, but it never feels like this is my house, though kind of has that feeling for them as well. Uh, but they take a couple of days, rest, refill some materials, you know, get ready for another trip, because they always try to keep their stuff ready to go. Check in with Molly, who... Uh, Molly's very happy to see them. It's, here, of course, everyone's always happy to hear that what happened in the North, and hear, her hearing that story from them is definitely going to help Molly out a lot, because Molly is one hell of a gossip. And she uh, that's why she's a great source of information for the PCs, because she does chitter-chat with 
all the different people that she makes the pies and such for, because that's what she does. She makes pies. She delivers them to inns and different places as well, so she meets a lot of people, innkeepers, who can then give her information that they hear and while they're chittering and chattering. So while they have, while they're very excited to hear of, uh, or she's very excited to hear that things went well in the north, very sad for the people that lost their lives and such, um, she says that there have been grumblings, minor grumblings, if you will, um, of some type of issues to the west. Um, now, when they're stressed for what type of issues, she says, well, it's uh, grumblings of potential war. This has been mentioned before. She, they, the parties have heard of this, that you know, the, there was some type of issue potentially... <laughs> Oh, Sage, thank you very much. <laughs> I appreciate that. Thank you very much. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, they, uh, they, they're, they're like, okay, we've heard this grumblings before, but it, it, it appears to be picking up pace and that there's some type of issue to the West that is causing a lot of nervousness. You know, the grumblings of not just war, um, but something more sinister. Nothing specific. Um, it's like no one seems to know the issue firsthand, but the rumors and the rumblings going around has um, some of the Paxwell Navy specifically uh, a little bit concerned um, because, you know, the the kingdom to the west is Thorman, and Thorman is, <clears throat> excuse me, is at this point a trade partner, not hardcore ally, but, you know, trade partner, but there's a big mountain range right in the middle of them. It, it, it would take months to march an army up and around that mountain range up to where they just fought Zarin, basically, and come through those woods and then come all the way back down. But if there was some type of military coming from that direction, it's more likely to be coming on the sea. So the Navy is definitely paying attention to these rumors. There's some increased activity. Uh, ships have a little bit higher amount of crew on them than they used to. Um, but since there's nothing blatant, nothing serious has been spoken of. No major military moves are being done. But there's definitely an uneasiness that can be felt in any of the trade centers, uh, shipside bars and such, that some of the characters will visit from time to time looking for information and things. Um, even in the market and such, when they're talking to people coming from the drinking, that, that uneasiness of something is not right over there. Um, so it's something that, the, you know, they kind of the PCs jot down, but it's not affecting them at this current time. After a couple days of rest and such, again, they receive a missive asking them to come back to the temple, which they do. And they're met with not just Sis Sister Mera, but uh, Brother Lycos is there. Now, we've not seen Lycos in a long time, not since they brought the box of Pandora back from them from the north. Uh, he's been off protecting that. Now, he looks a little tired, um, but lets him know that at this time, it's actually Brother Bart who is with the box of Pandora. Of the three main clerics, it was determined that at least one of them needs to be with it at all times to protect it, um, because it is a source of very dark magic, and they don't want it falling into the wrong hands. Um, they also say that they may have some potential more permanent location that will better protect it, um, but they must, you know, they can't, got to keep it secret. They can't tell the PCs where it's going to be. That's not very secretive. They trust them, but, you know. Who knows what's going to happen if PCs get captured or whatever. Magic spells cast on them. They just can't take that chance. The uh, Pandora's box is drastically too important to let it get out there. 
But what Brother Lyko says is he was doing a lot of research and such during the time that he had a lot of free time guarding this box. And that he had come across a couple of references and had been going through some of the stories that the PCs had told them previously. And he believes he knows where the next gem is, or at least one of the gems are, that the PC is searching for. If you haven't been here before, um, you will remember that there are gems that exist. And each gem has different abilities and such. And that there are a group of magical artifacts, weapons that the characters are trying to get a hold of. And somehow all those weapons are trapped in a prime material pocket within these stones. And the stones have to be brought together to be able to get them out again. That it only takes a few of the gems together to create the pocket plane. It takes all of them to get anything back out of it. And there were several of them at the large battle at the end of what you could call basically chapter one of this entire story. PCs have three of them now. Which again, they have the life gem, which is currently merged to Artemis's staff, which gives her additional healing abilities and additional um, healing spells, boosts her healing overall. The gems can be merged to any item, and what you merge them to will basically depend on what ability it gives it. Again, you you pour the life gem she'd attached it to a you know a, a water skin. It might give healing waters every time you drink from it. Every time you put water in it, it could be a healing potion. So it just depends on what you do with it. It will merge to come... Uh, what does PC stand for? Oh, I'm so sorry. Player characters. Um, in, in Dungeons & Dragons, um, and in and, and many video games as well, you are the player character. These are the characters that the people are playing in Dungeons & Dragons. They have their character sheets. The friends and such are playing those characters. Everybody else that is controlled by the Dungeon Master, everyone else from the innkeepers to Molly that I mentioned, or you know the priests at the temple, the military, the guy who runs the bar... All of those are called NPCs, which are non-player characters. Those are those are characters that are run by the game or the game master in a tabletop setting. So, uh, thank you very much for the question, though. I I slipped right into gaming jargon without even realizing. There's probably a lot of people that that's NPCs. Most people are familiar with because video games use that, but PCs not so much, unless you're talking about a computer itself. So. Uh, but that's what I was referencing. Thank you. All right, so uh, Brother Lycos, uh, one of the uh, if you remember, Brother Bart had given several different uh, potential. Uh, he received visions from the Goddess of Light as to potentially where these could be. And one of them was in, uh, you know, deep swirling blue. They got the water one. Uh, there was a green, green background, but with a flaming eye. That was Zarin with his flaming eyeball. Um, obviously, these have been working so far. But the third one was that it is in a place where even the gods can't see. Um, and that was a tricky one, because uh, they were like trying to figure out, well, a god can see anywhere. Where couldn't they? Um, and Lycos said that while researching and such, he goes, he, he, he literally, is, you can tell he's slightly irritated with himself, because he goes, it's simple. It was so simple, it was in front of me the whole time. I'm frustrated that it took me this long to figure it out. You've told me of your travels and your adventures. You've told me of the places you've been. And you've been to a place where the gods can't see because the gods are magical. And you've been in a place where magic does not exist. In the original story, or the original part of the story, when they were first gathering up the artifact weapons, they traveled through the remains of what was basically a post-apocalyptic New York City, which was yanked into this world. 
And that's where all of the gully dwarves live. Basically, New Gullyville is kind of what it's known as at this point. <laughs> I didn't actually name that myself. The characters came up with that, but it kind of stuck. Um, so New Gullyville is in the remains. As it's basically just trash heaps, ruins and such. Um, it's very... It, it, New York was destroyed before the merge. That's important for me to stress. Long before. While there's husks of cars, they're all rusted out. It's important that you realize no one's going to come across the working pistol. You know what I mean? You're not going to find that. It was important to me that that type of stuff be so rotted and gone that it doesn't really interfere with the world. That's not to say they won't come across interesting things. You can find regular jewelry and such that you'd find there. Um, things of that nature. But it is what's considered a dead magic zone. And in Dungeons & Dragons, dead magic zones can differ in size... Um, and the concept that I use on Merge World is there, there are many worlds in existence, and when Merge World was created, a chunk of every world was grabbed, multiple chunks in some situations, and hurled together to form this new world that we're on today. Some of those worlds were worlds that didn't have magic, Earth being an example of that. And so that chunk of Earth, that land, which is part of Merge World, still magic does not exist. It's still, each, each area maintains its original... Um, Basically, say game settings, if you will. Again, a desert is still hot. Doesn't matter if it's right next to a frozen tundra. There's a solid line where sand ends and ice starts. It doesn't melt and mush in the beginning. There's a serious line where that area maintains what it had originally before it was pulled through. Does not scientifically make any sense at all, but I promise it's going to make sense later. Because um, it's actually all of that that I've referenced multiple times. That's important, very much so down the road when they find out why that is. So I referenced it several times because it's important, and I referenced it a lot while playing the story because I wanted them to know that that was important as well, but at the same time, without telling them why. Um, sometimes characters will ask, just the players will ask questions. Hey, why, why is it like this? I can't tell you. Why not? Because it's important to the story later. If I say that, then they know, they know I can't give it away. It's a spoiler. They stop asking. Um, so that's kind of the the thing there. Let's see. Uh, desert next to Tundra. Me walking in my house on a hot day. There you go. <laughs> but you know, again, if you were to leave your door open and you stand in the doorway, you'll feel that mixture of heat and cold as the that area kind of begins to mix temperatures. It's not like that on Merge World. It is a solid line where you are freezing, you take one step, and now you're sweating. It's just that solid. So, I brought that up several times, but I wanted to stress how important that is. Um, and New Gullyville, New York, is exactly like that. One moment you're perfectly fine, and then bam, there's no magic. The characters are like, well, our, our heroes, if you will, our four adventurers are like, well, that makes sense, yes. Um, not, no one's happy about it, um, because at this point, many of these guys have some form of magical items on them. I've not gone into great detail in some of the ones they've come across. You know, sometimes they have a ring of this. Uh, but there's no major magic item on them that seriously breaks the game or breaks the story. Um, there are specific magic items that they get a hold of that I'm going to make you aware of, like I did the chest of holding, because it's important you know they have those. A ring of protection plus two that makes them a little bit harder to hit for the story makes no difference. They just basically have those type of things. Sometimes they may get a magical weapon or a magical armor, just an art artifact or item. I will specifically let you know when there's an item of, of importance because at that point it's going to have an effect on the story. And there are quite a few. Quite a few out there like that that we're going to run into. Uh, some of them temporary, some of them permanent. 
Um, but the little stuff, a ring of feather fall, you know, unless it seriously affects the story, I'm, I'm not even going to mention it kind of thing. And that's just some of the real basic early magic items that characters normally find in a Dungeon Dragon story. So they're like, okay, well, we know where we got to go there then. That looks like where we're next. We have to head up north. Um, because that's a good distance away. It's on the opposite side of what is known as the Valley of Sacrifice, which is where the, their battle happened. That's where the Flying Citadel fell upon the army below and thousands lost their lives as multiple armies fought together. The Valley of Sacrifice is where they technically died and where Zoltan brought them back. The clerics um, also ask the characters, while you're going up that direction... It's a little bit out of the way. I'd like you, they would like you to cut through the Valley of Sacrifice because there have been rumors of things seen in the valley. And they ask, okay, well, what type of things? Ghosts, spirits, maybe some type of magical beast? They're not sure. Some people who've traveled through that area at night have said that they've heard the sounds of battle and potentially seen figures walking around that glowed in the moonlight. So we'd like to just get a little bit more information on that. We were going to send some people up there to look at it ourselves, but hey, you're already a cleric of healing in this group who's getting pretty powerful and pretty close with the temple, so we're going to use you in this situation, Artemis. We're going to ask you to run this this errand for the temple, which with all the help they're giving them, there's no way the characters would say no. Plus, you know, why not? It's not that far to their way. They'll do that. So they, they make some plans. The temple, of course, always offering help themselves, makes arrangements for horses and stuff, because that's one thing they don't have themselves, are horses, because um, they don't have a place to store that in their house. You know, they don't have a house with a garage, so there's no horses there. Um, so a lot of times they will purchase, or they'll just buy a horse and take it, or the temple, or in this last adventure, Paxwell Military provided them for them, because they were on basically a mission helping out the military. In this situation, it's an errand specifically for the church, um, when asked, do you want us to send some Templars with you, which are basically knights of the church, or speak with the military and have an escort go with you? Uh, the group thought about it, but was decided not to, because they know that once they get there, um, they're not really going to need a lot of clerical help. And as for battle help, it's basically all gully dwarves. Uh, gully dwarves, if you're not familiar with, are one of the Dungeons characters. They're basically uh, shorter than a normal dwarf, a little bit shorter, actually a little bit shorter than even a gnome. Um, but they're very, very low intelligence. They're the mixture of when a dwarf and a gnome has a child. And it's very rare normally that they're born, but they're very low intelligent, uh, looked down upon by almost every race, um, treated poorly, enslaved, a lot of times just murdered out. And so they usually live in squalor, in communities, in ruins or in sewers and things of that nature. And there, there can be good ones and bad ones, just like any other group in different alignments, but they're all very, very unintelligent. And so, for some reason, they all felt drawn towards this ruins of New York, and they're at this point, at last, their last visit through, potentially a couple thousand of them living in this city, which is perfect for them. Ruins and stuff, there's still rats and animals and stuff running around, they live on that, that type of thing, plants that are still growing in there, and then just living in the rubbish. So, um, they're like, we want to go in there. We go in there with a big military force. That could really scare the gully dwarves. And we have, you know, we, we'd spoken with them once. If we can speak with them again, they may be helpful to us. Walking in there with a military group, they may hide. 
Because this is a huge piece of land, and it's a giant ruins. And they're looking for a gem. A magical gem. And they don't even know if this gem is going to be magical once they get there. Is this gem powerful enough to still have its magical properties in this dead magic zone? Because the magical artifacts they had originally did not. And those were unbreakable any other time. Not that they were trying to break them, but they definitely lost their, their magical abilities. So they take a couple days. They do take some horses. That's something the, the temple arranges for them. Because, again, Darsh is a minotaur and Darsh is a big guy. If you've not been here before, our four characters are Darsh, who is a male minotaur warrior. Um, black fur, he has one and a half horn. One is half broken off at this point. There's Artemis Silverstar, who is an elven cleric of healing. Uh, Tavian being the god of healing. Um, and for those, I'm not sure if I ever showed this. Tavian, to me, um, is basically Hugh Laurie. Basically house. is kind of the concept I had. He's a cleric of healing, but he walks with a limp. He walks with a cane or a staff. Even the god does. Because it's, it's said that every time he heals someone, he takes that pain or injury of that mortal into himself and giving part of himself to them. And that's how healing magic would work. It's through the, the healing of Tavian. But because of that, he's always never fully healed himself. Um, that'll be important again later. Our next one is Mercy Heriton. Mercy is a female warrior uh, raised in a family of uh, knights in a knighthood that is both male and female genders treated the same. Uh, she was very well trained as a warrior. Um, her and Darsh get along really, really well, but she's best friends with Artemis. And number four is Dandelion Nuttleleaf, known as Dandy, who is a kender. If you're not familiar with a kender, is imagine a short little elf, but who lives around the same length of time as a human instead of long time like an elf. Uh, overly curious, um, incredibly dexterous, uh, rogues by nature, although they're such good rogues, a lot of times they don't realize they're stealing it, they're just curious. Um, but they have um, the inability to feel fear. So they're immune to fear, even magical fear in most situations. There are exceptions, but in most situations. Um, which means they don't have a long lifespans because they have this wanderlust to go out and experience, but they'll put themselves in situations that fear would normally keep you out of. Uh, so Dandy's kind of the rogue of the party. And they say, okay, we're going to spend a couple days. We'll get the horses. Darsh has to have a very big horse. The temple has to make arrangements for that. He's a big guy. Um, but they get the stuff, and they decide to, to travel out. Now, they're taking more of a direct route this time than when they were basically raised from the dead and brought down. When they were raised from the dead, they traveled southwest for a ways until they got to a small t uh, human settlement, which was the border of Paxiwal. And then that was the beginning of a road system that took them southeast, yes, to Paxiwal itself. Now they're going directly northeast. So they're kind of cutting out those human settlements and following a separate road system that's going to take them up to the, the borders of the land, that area. So that's what happens. They hop on there, they start traveling. And they're not in a hurry. You know, they don't even know if the gem is there. And they know that this time, at least on the way home, they can't use their magical teleporter rings at least until they're out of that um, dead magic zone. Because they know it's not going to work there. They didn't ask for any help from the mage tower in this situation because they're going to a place where magic doesn't work. Not a lot the mages are going to be able to do to help them there. They did make them aware of where they're traveling. Um, they know they're there. So they begin this travel, and they're taking their time going through the small towns, stopping at inns, resting overnight. You know, they're not camping out in the rain. Um, they definitely have 
a decent amount of coin in their pockets. They got a small treasure from the uh, sea gem adventure where they got that gem back. So they've got a little bit of loot from that. Plus, a lot of times the temple or is 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 paying for their basic supplies for them. Because while they're doing this, they're they're still kind of not just allies, but a lot of times used as minions of the temple because their goals are furthering the temple's goals as well. They travel northeast, and. This section, the roads are actually built a lot better. Uh, so they actually make very, very good time. The last couple trips they've made have been northwest. Now they're getting to northeast. They're definitely making better time than normal. So it only takes them a couple of weeks till they get to what would be the edge of Paxawal's land. And at that point, the roads pretty much just come to a stop. And they're going to be traveling just across grassy plains, minor hills, but nothing mountainous, no large forests, small forest areas pop up, but nothing severe. Uh, it's relatively flat land, uh, so it's not difficult to travel. In this area, at this point, it is getting to be early fall, early to mid-fall, I'd say. Um, so, as they're traveling, it's the temperatures are cool but comfortable, um, at least in the lands that they're traveling through currently. Who knows what the other lands are going to be? They could walk into winter and then into spring within a five-foot stretch, so these things happen. Um, I do mention the date or of the time of year at this point because I I have my own calendar for this world and everything. Trust me, I, I I had I had a calendar for every year that we played, changing the dates and everything. Uh, so I have all that for when it's needed, different names of the months and all that kind of stuff. So I'm not going to go into that in the story because it's not important. But I have it. I have a lot of information on how time works in this world. Um, but. I do have holiday seasons, and I, when we did play the adventure, a lot of times I did try to have a Christmas-themed event when we were playing around our Christmas time. Halloween-themed events every year. Um, so, not right now, but down the road, you're going to see some of the adventures are going to feel very holiday-kind-of-themed parts of the adventure, and that's because I timed them around that specifically. I, I, it was just something fun that I tried to do that the, the group we were playing with really seemed to enjoy. So, and uh, Some of it will be takeoffs of uh, maybe minor rip-offs of some of the other uh, fables of things you've heard, my version of them. Uh, but I, I think you'll they're, they're different enough that you'll enjoy them. But we're not there yet. So they travel. And as they're traveling, one of the things that they do ask, especially the further north they get, is they start asking about the Valley of Sacrifice, which is the name that, that was in it. It's a big bowl-shaped valley, very large. A flying citadel came flying over it. A battle was underneath. The citadel fell, crashing into the ground, killing a bunch of people, mostly monsters, to be honest. It fell towards them. But it killed a lot of people. And that ruins is still there in the, the valley itself. And people that they talk to say that no one really will go into the valley. The valley doesn't give off any type of fear. It doesn't seem spooky. But what they keep hearing is that at night... Anyone who's traveling through there or, or camping on the edge of the valley, because it's, again, very plains-like there, so there's a lot of comfortable places to, to be on the you know, to go all the way down and back up the valley is more work than it's need, but going around it around the edge is, would be very, very common. Um, it's like someone took a perfect ice cream scoop and just scooped out a valley. Um, but they say that they see spirits and ghosts are seen down in there, and so people try not to be near the valley at night. Um, they ask, has anyone been attacked by these specters? Has anyone been, have there anything where they've sought them out or woken up to find them, you know, stealing their loot or trying to kill them or anything like that? And they say, no, they, this, the spirits seem to move as if they don't realize anyone's there. 
They take this information like, okay, we'll have to check this out ourselves. Now, we, of course, as adventurers, are going to have to go there and clearly stay there at night because that's what we do. Um, but we'll go and stay on the edge and see what we can see. So after uh, several days to about a week most of being outside the last village, the edge of what is Paxiwal's land, and there's a small military group there. They say, hey, we're from Paxiwal, we're traveling through. They're like, okay, well, best of luck to you. They make their way towards the Valley of Sacrifice. This place is important. More so in the future, but um, a major event happened on this world here. One of the first big ones. And that had an effect on the world itself. So they get there about early to midday. They reach the valley. And they're like, well, no one says they've seen anything during the day. Let's go down in there and take a look. See if we can find anything. We'll just make sure we're out of the valley at night so we can look down in the valley, which, because again, it's big enough that a castle could fall in it, but it's short enough that you could walk across it within a small period of time. A couple football fields, if that, you know. So they do that. They leave their horses and hitch them up top and make a little camp. Um, they haven't seen anybody in a while. There's no signs of anything. They don't have anything of real value up there, so they, they feel comfortable leaving it there because they can kind of see it from the valley's bottom. They can see their horses and stuff up there. If they see any brigands, they'll run up there and smack them around. But nobody tries to steal their stuff, so that's not a concern. They go down, and they're looking in the ruins. And it's much like it was when they were born. <laughs> Reborn, I guess you could say. When they crawled out of the rubble, um, and Zoltan, the demigod, brought them back, who they've not seen in a long time, I'd like to point out. He said they probably wouldn't, but they've not seen him in a long time. They make their way down, and they're just looking around, and it's much like it was until they get around to the east side of the rubble. Now, as I mentioned, that as the, as the citadel fell from the sky, it fell down and tipped. So it was kind of right over the middle of the valley. So as it fell and it landed and, and tipped, you know, it, it's going to lean more towards the west because that's the direction it came from. That's, it tipped. So imagine the Titanic sinking. As it fell, it cracked and pieces were falling off, so it didn't fall as one solid log of a castle. Part of that, even when it hit the ground, exploded. But part of it was very stable, was a big chunk of rock. So in the middle of it, there's literally a chunk of earth sticking out of the ground with the remnants of the, of the rubble of like a tower that was literally tipped right over with pieces of it around. Now, a lot of those pieces, it's been over a year at this point, Grass has started to grow over them. There's no really trees in this area, but the grass and the vegetation has grown over it. It was dirt and rock to begin with. There's still some big rock pieces sticking out of the ground and definitely um, pieces of stone that have been worked into the building itself. But when I get around to the east side, almost directly east, they're surprised to find, you know, because this is where it would be the base of that, that big chunk rock, the solid piece of stone, the largest piece that sticks up out of the ground. Which, when I say sticks up out of the ground, it's a huge rock. I mean, even though it dug into the thing, it's probably 15, 20 feet at least high, this giant rock outcropping and jaggedness, which they expect to find just rubble and dirt as it collapses upon itself. And it is for most of it. But directly on the east side, there's an opening. And not just an opening like a crack, a perfect arched doorway lined in stone like someone just had just came there the day before and dug it out and within this doorway is a set of smooth stone stairs 
going down. This is not obviously was not there when the castle fell. There's no way everything else was destroyed. There's no way this would be perfect. And again, the stairs are built down. The castle's on its end. If it had been that way, the stairs would not be perfectly going in the bottom. You understand? In the center of the bottom was technically a metal grate you could see down to the battlefield anyways. It was like a donut of rock. They're like, well, we are going to have to check this out. Dandy, of course, goes first, checking for tracks, traps and tracks. Finds nothing. In fact, finds no dust, no speck of dirt. As they make their way down, they have some torches, even though they all have some form of improvision or the ability to see at night. For those of you who haven't been here before, Mercy has a magical um, tiara kind of thing that she wears, like uh, almost like a metal crown headband um, that lets her see in the dark as if it's daytime. So she can see better than most of the ones with improvision can. Um, Again, that magic item that I, I named specifically because it becomes important down the road. She has that, but they decide to use a torch anyways instead of kind of whip that stuff out. And uh, they go down with some, with some torches. The stairs go down only a very short distance before they open up into a chamber. This chamber, perfectly smooth. If I was to describe the shape of the chamber, imagine... A glass lid on a metal plate. Now, when I say a glass lid, I'm going to use this as an example. Hopefully, you understand what I'm talking about. Beauty and the Beast, the cartoon. The rose floated inside of this tall glass dome. So, it wasn't round like you think on a metal plate with food underneath of it kind of thing. So, it's not like a perfect bowl. But it almost comes up and then rounds in bowls at the top. Hopefully that makes sense. Um, if not, let me know, and I'll try to describe it better. Um, it's it's not like super thin. It, it only goes up a short ways and then bowls that way. But it's perfectly smooth stone. I mean, not a single tool marker etching upon it. This clearly looks magical in nature. But the dome shape in the rock, which clearly was not there before when they were here last time, they would have noticed it when they were searching, because they did search when they were here last time to try to find any remnants of weapons or clothing, because they didn't have anything. Perfectly etched. Clearly had to be done by magical means. But the shape of the room itself is irrelevant to what stands in the room. And that is an arch. Statuesque in nature. This arch, much like the dome, goes up, kind of tall-like, and then curves at the top. The arch itself... I would probably say is maybe each each leg of the arch. Because uh, it's the, the exact same size from base to top to back bottom again. It doesn't get thinner or thicker. The arch itself maintains that same shape, probably about a foot and a half by foot and a half at its base. So, square-wise. And it goes perfectly smooth. Again, no tool marks at all. It's just an arch you could walk through. An example of this could be that arch in St. Louis, I think, would probably get an idea. <laughs> Way smaller than that one, but, you know, again, just a big statuesque arch in this room. The room itself has a glow to it. There's no light source, but it's not pitch black. If you were standing in there and they, they put their torch out, they can all see enough. It's not well lit. There's nothing above giving light, but it has like a, a glow itself, but with no source. The whole room itself seems to radiate with this light. They go up, and of course, they have to check it, as you would. 
Dandy checks for traps. There's nothing trapped about it they can find. Artemis says, I'm going to go ahead and see if I can detect magic on it. Now, the way detect magic spells work in Merged World, when you cast a magical spell, it'll cover an area or a range, and the brightness, it'll cause something to glow. doesn't make it where everybody can see it glow, but the caster can see it glow. And the brighter the color, or brighter the glow, the more magical something is. There are exceptions to this. Some magic items give off a low, even though they're much higher powered. That's part of what hides them. That's part of their magic. But on average, the brighter the glow, the more magical something is. And the color of the glow can help identify what type of magic it is. Is it a summoning magic? Is it a conjuring magic? Is it an illusion type kind of magic? Although illusion magics themselves can almost show up as anything if it's a good illusion. But that's how a detect magic spell works for a cleric and a mage the same way. Although a mage detecting a clerical magic would only know that it's a clerical magic. They wouldn't see the different schools like a cleric would. Same as a cleric detecting a mage would not see the different schools of wizardry, different colors for illusions and such. They would just see a color and say, okay, that's a wizard's magic. I can see it's magical. Don't know what the source is. I'm a cleric. But if it's cleric magic, I can tell you the different color. It'll mean something to me. Brief review on that, because that's something we're going to run into probably many times as we move forward. But this is the first time that it really mattered. And it mattered because upon casting the spell, Artemis immediately cries out and falls backwards. Doesn't take a half second for everybody to have weapons in their hands. Darsh and Mercy immediately armed, almost back-to-back, standing over top of Artemis, because they're very protective of her. And they don't know where the attack is coming from. Dandy already had a hoop pack in her hand ready to whip out, trying to scooch in kind of between them. She's little, she can pretty much go between Darcy's legs if she needs to. And everybody just, they're watching for an attack. No one's really saying anything, no one's checking on Artemis yet, because they have to make sure they're not under attack. After a couple seconds, nothing's happening. Dandy then leaves Darsh Mercy, who are again, just kind of watching things. She goes down to check Artemis is okay. Artemis assures them that it's okay, they can calm down. She was not under attack. But when she cast her Detect Magic spell on that arch, the light was so blinding and so sharp, piercing of a white color, which in itself is not a school, and is not normally would be a magic uh, of like a mage, so she can't say, I don't know what color it is because it's a mage spell, is a piercing white hot light, almost like staring into a sun that's ten times brighter than a normal sun. It just immediately struck her, with her sensitive vision already being an elf, it just was blinding and, and almost gave her a migraine, like right on the spot. And she just called it, cried out and fell backwards. Instinctual. She, of course, cancels the spell, because detecting magic lasts a period of time, but you can cancel it when you want. With most spells, you can do that. Some spells, once you've unleashed them, you just gotta sit back and wait for them to finish doing what they're gonna do. But this spell, you can stop when you need. And they're like, okay, well, this is clearly magical, which is not a surprise, because it wasn't here before, and it doesn't look like somebody was in here with pickaxes and hammers building this thing. Uh, Sage says, Spongebob movie bald scene comes to mind when talking about blinding light. Something like that, yeah. <laughs> so they know it's very magical. But they've already touched it by this point. They've looked at it, I mean, relatively closely. Dandy has, checking for traps and such. They're a little more cautious now, but they still are investigating it. They want to find out what this is. It's definitely not normal. And they want to report it to the temple. 
Maybe they can send some mages up here who know more about magic to look into this. They don't have a mage. They do wish they had a mage right now, but they didn't bring one. But looking closely at the, there are no etchings on it at all. And it's a whitish gray color. To us, you could say it almost looks steel-like, but it's not steel. Kind of that color of like a polished steel. And completely smooth. And when they touch it, it actually has a bit of a warm feeling to it. And it feels as smooth as glass to them. Dandy, without, you know, really asking anyone else, decides to see if she can chip it a little bit with her dagger. Their friends are like, yeah, don't do that, it's magical. But even though they stopped her, the few chips made not a mark on it at all. Not a scratch, like nothing had happened. This is very peculiar. But at this point, there's not much that they can do with it. Very interesting, though. I'm sure it's going to be important later. But it's definitely all... They learn everything they can. They don't find anything in there. Other than that, no writings anywhere. No traps, no doors. No other items of any kind. It's just this big room with an arch. Oh, and the arch itself is about, at its base, 9 to 10 feet wide but about 15 to 16 feet tall. So again, it's not a perfect McDonald's arch. It does come up a little bit longer and then curve at the top. A little bit more like a rounded doorway, if you will. But a little bit more curved than that. Not perfect straight up, but more so. I have a good picture I found of a doorway that's like this. I actually looked for it today and I couldn't find it on my computer because I have way too many pictures on my computer. I'm going to keep looking for it. Hopefully I'll have it by next time or at least the next time we see this so that way you'll have a little bit more of what I imagine. Um... But I do have a picture for this. I apologize I couldn't find it. Uh, and I tried just Googling it. And I couldn't find one that matched what I wanted. I didn't want to throw one up that was only halfway there and then get the wrong thing stuck in your head. So, cool archway. Very, very magical. Very, very cool. Very important. Just not right now. But they definitely take all the notes, they, all the stuff, make sure that they're aware of this. Clearly it's magical. No tool marks, all that kind of stuff. But it's getting late. They want to make sure they're out of the valley before nighttime, before dark from this falls. So they make their way back out, completely unmolested, nothing hurting them, no signs, no problems. Horses and stuff are up there. They make their camp, and they wait for night to come. And sure enough, much as what, what they've been described, in the evening as the, the moon comes out, and this is important, as the moon starts to shine, they can see the silhouettes of figures. And... Sometimes they'll be there and they won't, and then there'll be some over here and some over here, and then there'll be a large, there'll only be two or three. And it's very easy to them, all being experienced in these type of things, that it's the battle happening. These are the spirits that were fighting in this valley back when this battle took place. And sometimes they're the knights, sometimes they see the gully dwarves, humans, orcs and half-orcs that are attacking. I mean, there's the spirits of everyone kind of thing that was fighting in there. Reliving that. And sometimes a spirit will only be there for a couple of seconds. They'll make a couple movements and then be gone. Sometimes it'll be a couple of minutes. They're reenacting a battle scene and then someone dies or something and then that one fades out. But they watch it for quite a while. Again, keeping an eye on it. But the spirits don't make any attempt to come to them. Um, and Artemis, being the most magical here, says these are clearly spirits that are somehow locked to this place, reliving this over and over. At least that's what she sees. I don't know if they're actual spirits here or if they're just echoes. Because those are different things. Um, that's not her area of expertise. She's a healing spirit, not 
not a, a death spirit, a death cleric. That's a whole other thing. Um, but she says, definitely we want to report this to the mages because they're going. The clerics going to want to send something up here. Probably the mages too, because that did not seem like cleric magic in that archway thing. But this stuff here is also not could be cleric or magey. A little out of the range. We need to make sure that the temple and the mages both know so they can come up and figure out what's going on in this valley because this is relatively new, they're hearing. The spirits didn't happen when they were first here. There was no rumors of it back then. And, of course, this wasn't an arch there either. So are these things connected? Hmm. Time will tell. But as normal, eventually they realize they're going to have to head out the next day. They're going to have to get some rest. And they take turns being on watch, as they always do when they're on their adventure. And the order, normally, is that Mercy goes first, Darsh goes last. People in the middle can fluctuate depending on who's there. But usually it's going to be Mercy first and Darsh last. That's how they like to roll. Darsh will sleep first, get his rest, and then he'll handle the last part of the, of the shift, if you will. Dandy and, and Artemis take turns, although they usually take turns a little bit shorter than Mercy and Darsh. Especially Artemis needs her time to, to pray and study for her spells anyway, so while she's watching, that's a lot of times part of when she does that. And the night moves through relatively quickly. But about that time... One second while I take a drink. Delicious. It is Artemis's turn at watch. And going a little tired of watching the figures relive this battle, an elf who values life normally, cleric of healing even more so, watching these poor souls having to relive the final moments of their lives, which for many of them probably ended in just a violent death of some kind, really, really weighs upon her. Bums her out, if you will. So she finds herself more often looking away from the valley, kind of watching the moon and just watching the plains, some trees in the distance. And It's a nice night, a little breezy, but nothing real bad. She's just kind of sitting back, enjoying the evening. Um, the spirits make no noises. I forgot to say that. There's no sounds coming from the valley. The valley is very, very quiet and peaceful sounding. But she does get tired of watching these poor souls die over and over again. And she doesn't quite say that she sees the same ones popping up over and over. There are many, but it's hard to say, oh, there's that guy again. Oh, there's that orc again. It's, it's hard to see that. But it is something that they, she did, they all watched for a little bit. So she's just kind of sitting back, looking away her companions and the fire behind her. She's not looking at the, the fire, which is mostly out right now, but still burning a little bit, allowing more of her night vision to kind of look out over the, the moonlight and look in the distance. And as she's sitting there... She can't help just, you know, it's a beautiful night tonight. At least that's what the voice says directly beside her. She turns very quickly because, you know, somebody just said something in a voice that she does not recognize. And is about to call out to her friends, but stops. sitting just a few feet away from her, comfortably leaning back like she is, looking in the same direction, is a man. But unlike any man she's ever seen, 
doesn't even know if it's human. His skin, he looks human-like, although his hair is long and white as snow, pulled back a bit, past his shoulders. Skin relatively pale, very, very white skin, but his ears are slightly pointed, almost like an elf's. He looks at her and smiles with genuine interest, no animosity. He said, do you not agree? It's a beautiful evening. She nods her head a little nervously. He looks at her friends and says, don't worry, they're asleep. They won't wake until I'm ready for them to. You all are getting around here. I've seen you before, you know. I saw you many, many, many months ago. When you first walked out of this place, oddly enough. You're back again. And I can't help but tell you I'm intrigued. I'm getting all sorts of little things. I don't, please don't misunderstand. I don't spend all my time worrying about you. But I have heard rumors occasionally of some of the things you've been involved in. And they're not small feats by any means. Even more so, the gathering of these. And he holds up his hand. And in his hand is the fire gem and the water gem that they have. He's holding them both in and finding, gathering these, plus the little green one on your stick over there. That's no small feat either. These are incredibly powerful. And in the wrong hands, they could do a lot of damage. He then holds his hand out like this. Very cautiously, she puts her hand out and he drops the stones right into her hand. Says, you don't have anything to worry about. I don't need your stones. They're not why I'm here. They're not going to help me in any way. But you have been traveling. And you traveled a lot, it seems, over the last several years from what I've heard. So I want to ask you a question. Have you seen anyone at all that looks like me? Maybe not identical, but close. But maybe with darker hair. Someone who shares my other physical attributes. Have you seen anyone like that in your travels? Artemis, trying to be courageous, says no, hears her voice crack a little bit, and then is immediately irritated with herself. But she says no. He smiles a little more and goes, I was afraid of that. Do me a favor, won't you? If you see someone who shares my attributes, but again, has darker hair than myself. See if you can get a little information about where they might be staying. If you do that, I would be greatly appreciative. Artemis says, I'm sure we could we can look. I mean, is, is there a reason? And his eyes get a little bit more more uh, troubled. He goes, it's imperative that I find him as soon as possible. Just keep an eye out for me. And it might be better if you didn't tell your friends that we had this chat. I know you're going to want to. And if you choose to, of course, it's, it's your choice. But 
It might be better if you don't, for their safety. At no point does Artemis feel like her life is in danger. In fact, his voice and demeanor are actually quite calming. Although when he does mention his friend's safety, she feels just the slightest bit of an edge in there. Not that like he's threatening, but that there's a threat that exists. He stands up very, very smoothly in his moves. And almost unhuman-like. Gives us small bow and says, I look forward to the day we speak again, Miss Artemis. I wish you and your companions good luck on the rest of your journey. And then turns and begins to walk east in the distance. He's but a few feet away before she hears the pitter-patter of feet coming from just off the hill. And two large gray wolves come up and start walking next to him, one on each side. And he just kind of walks off a distance and then almost like a flicker, she, does, she doesn't see them anymore. The wolves in here, she's got good sight. There's nothing obstructing her vision. She could see a great distance. Elvish. <clears throat> but it's almost like he walked into a fog bank and then shimmered and was gone. <clears throat> Excuse me. Although there was no fog, just he and his wolves were suddenly no longer there. She did not catch his name. He gave no information about himself. And instinctually, she wants to wake up her friends and be like, this has just happened. But he gave her the stones back. I mean, they were... He clearly had them unconscious in some way. Whether he had cast a spell on them or something. They were having a conversation... I mean, Darsh and Mercy would have woken up hearing a voice they did not know. They weren't that far away from them. They're only six, five, six feet away. So clearly they were ensorcelled in some way. But he gave him, so he has power, but he gave her the gems back. And while she wants to tell them, something inside of her says she needs to not do that. She decides to keep it to herself. She quickly goes and returns the stones back to her pouch where they would have been, over in her bag, over there. In the chest of holding, surprisingly. So dude somehow got in the chest of holding, got it, did all that without her knowing. That's, that's, that's important too. Because there's a command word for the chest of holding. Technically you shouldn't know that either. But he somehow got in the chest of holding, got these gems out in the little leather bag they come in. And she goes in there, the little leather bag's sitting in there they keep it in there so it can't be spells can't be cast to find it kind of thing now I have a picture for this character and he's important obviously I went into a lot of detail about this little meeting I'm going to show you what he looks like I want to say that tell you that when I created this character I had never seen this picture Two times in all of my story writing I've done have I come across an actor or a picture that 100% perfectly matches the picture that was in my head. This was the first of that time. The second one, we're not to yet. But this is what the character looks like, and some of you who play other fantasy games might recognize him. Let's see if I can find it here. That's our guy. <clears throat> 
Now, if you are listening to this on the audio version, I will be posting this picture up on my website, onlydraven.com, under the Characters tab at the top. That's where I put pictures and actors. Um, <laughs> yes, Neon, this is the guy. Neon knows a little something nobody else does, but he, uh, he had a special earned thing there. But that is the guy. Um, if you play Magic the Gathering, you'll know that this is a character from that game. Understand that I created this character before I ever saw that picture, possibly before that character existed in Magic. Granted, I've been playing Magic. I played Magic a long time ago on the tournament scene back in the late, early, mid to late 90s. Um, long before he was ever in the character there, which so was cool when I came across this picture. Because every picture of this guy is perfect for the guy that Artemis just had a short conversation with. Um, but we'll find out his name at another time. But that's it. Okay. So, oh, here we go. Here, uh, Sage says, Oof, I have work at 6 in the morning, so I'm a dip. Shower, then sleep. You take it easy. Hey, thanks for coming by, Sage. We appreciate it. Uh, this video, of course, will be up immediately afterwards. So if you want to check out the rest later, check it out on iTunes. I'll have it up on iTunes normally by tomorrow night. Uh, it takes about 24 hours to get the audio version up there. But thank you very much for coming by, Sage. It was a pleasure having you. All right, so... Soon, Darsh wakes up to relieve Artemis from her watch, take over for the rest of the day. And, you know, yeah, everything okay? And she says yes, but she's very quiet. And right off the bat, Darcy's like, mm, that didn't seem normal. But there's a lot of weird stuff going on in this valley behind her. And he, they all knew that it was bothering Artemis watching all the battle. I mean, she commented about that. She, they're friends. She's open about it. But watching them die over and over again, he chalks it up to having to sit there alone at night with the specters of people dying the whole time. Um, you could see, you know, for him, Minotaur, Warrior, eh, that happens. But he could see how Artemis might have problems with that. So he chalks it up to that and doesn't really push it any further. But the night ends without any type of issues at all. And in the morning, everyone gets up. Um, Artemis seems a little less rested than normal. But uh, again, everyone just chalks it up to the stress of the evening and the day before. And they pack up their gear and such. And begin to continue their, or sorry, they continue their trek north. Now it takes another, oh goodness, they have horses so it's faster, but it still takes like a good, almost a week to get to the edge of New Gullyville. Now, this is one of those lands where immediately you can tell you're stepping into a different world. Because as soon as they reach the edge, and Artemis kind of has to chalk herself up for it, because she knows the second she steps in there, she is going to lose all connection with her god. She's got no spells. She's got nothing. And that is a very naked feeling for someone who's constantly got that feel of magic. Wizards would be the same way. It's another reason why magical creatures will avoid going into a dead magic zone. You're not going to find a dragon in a dead magic zone. It literally will repel them, the feeling. They just, in, in any magical creature of that nature. Again, making it a perfect place for gully dwarves. Because uh, I mean, not a lot of things are going to be wanting to go in there and hang out very long. And with it being as po post apocalyptic as it is, there's not a lot of good farmland in there. In fact, it was very swampy, if you'll remember. It was very swampy until they get into the actual city part itself. 
And it's not the whole thing of New York. Obviously, the, it's a big chunk of New York, but New York itself is massive. So, big chunk of the city. They get to the border. They're like, okay, we're going to have to be careful with the horses at this point because we can see it's swampy right there. And the second they step in, I mean, the sky is gray and cloudy. Um, almost has a bit of a, like a thunderstorm kind of thing going. Although it's not raining, it kind of has that feel like it's about to thunderstorm any minute. The clouds are swirling a little bit faster. You normally only expect to see in a heavy storm. And it does rain, and it's rained. And it rains not acid rain. It doesn't hurt anybody, but it, it's, it always looks like it's going to thunder. It's never sunny here. So they proceed to make their way. Now, immediately once they're in there, Artemis tries to use her staff, which has the life gem on it, to cast a spell. And it doesn't work. Doesn't work at all. She even dawns on her she might be able to pop it off of the staff at this point. Because if you remember, one thing that they were told is that when you merge a gem to something or someone, it becomes a permanent. The only way to get it off is for either the living thing to die or the thing to be destroyed. But it dawns on her she could possibly do it here, but she's not sure how that would affect things, and the little Healy stick has been helpful. So she decides not to mess with it. Um, and the other two gems are in the chest of holding, which they can't open because now it's just a little miniature chest. It looks like a figurine of a chest because once they step inside, it loses its magical properties as well. It's just a little chest. So no magic stuff working. And even the tiara that Mercy uses to see at night. Although it's daytime and gloomy, she can see okay now. At night, she would have to use torches in this place. So... They start making their way. They're traveling in as best they can, but it's not long before they get to a point where it's just rocky and jagged and they're getting to what would be you know, some streets paved, there's cracks and such, and it's just very hard to get the horses through. Um, so they don't know how far they're going to go in, but they decide, you know, it might be best if we kind of leave the horses here. They don't really time up as much. But then you try to use some things, kind of like build a small corral around some area that has some grass kind of growing on it. So hopefully they got some food and they don't wander off. But they're like, we'll leave them here. We'll go ahead a bit. We can always come back and get them tonight if we have to. But it's just getting too hard to ride the horses through. So they leave the horses and they continue on on foot. And they're following, which is this main road, which again, cracked and broken. And sometimes like literally you got to jump across holes and like almost like... Uh, you expect lava in there, but it's not. It's just a busted up where the, it's broken out of the ground itself. They're having to hop and climb around it sometimes. But they follow this main road system, this main highway, if you will, into what would be New York. But it's really New Gullyville. And they make their way in. And again, it's midday-ish at this point, so they've got plenty of time for a night. They, they make their way good ways into what would be the city itself. And they can find the buildings and stuff stuff that is all smashed around. Give me one quick second. I got a quick text here. One second. One second. Your wife asking a quick question here. There we go. All right. Sorry. Quick question about an errand after run tomorrow. Sorry. So they're making their way in and they're getting here and you and you're going to see they they come across things which would be busted down cars. The glasses long shattered out of them. Tires all deflated. 
clearly. They've been sitting there. The rubber's rotted away. It's almost per perfectly obvious that these vehicles have been sitting here, these whatever they are, they don't know it's a vehicle, whatever they are, have been here 20, 30, 40 years minimum, just rust on them. The glass is shattered out in most of them. They don't understand what it is. It looks kind of like it was some type of carriage-looking thing, although they can't figure out where the horses would hook on. All that classic kind of thing. And they're making their way in, and they don't see any signs of life. No gullies. No anything else. Um, and they they're, they didn't come into this area the same way they came out last time. So, And of course, a couple of these ones weren't even here. But they're not traveling in the same way, so they don't see anything they recognize, like the big broken sleeping green giant, which was the part of the Statue of Liberty that was left. Um, they don't see any of that where they are. But they get the feeling like they're being watched. Yeah, everybody has that from time to time, but they all feel that way. Even Dandy, who's not nervous by it, but Dandy, who is probably more acutely aware of things like that, she's like, I feel like we're being watched or followed, but I don't see anybody. And it's hard for someone to stay hidden from Dandy at all. And occasionally you'll hear, you'll hear crumbling of a piece of building falling down. Because again, there were skyscrapers here. Most of them were broken by a big chunk, but there's still some high ruins you'll see at areas of large buildings where chunks will just break off and fall. Wind hit it the same way. And that happens in any old, old ruins when things are starting to, the earth gets shifted. You can imagine this is, a lot of this is built over a subway system that a lot of that's caved in at some point, which is just going to make the ground... Just very, very weak and lurching at times. Earthy quakes, kind of stuff like that. So they continue on. Now, they get to a point in the road where there are several of these chariot things, cars, that appear to have been moved recently. Or even flipped on their sides as much, almost building a bit of a wall blocking this road and such. Now, they're not stacked on top of each other. Nothing like a dragon picked it up and dropped it. But something or something is moving. They could tell from the earth and stuff that was around it, it's shifted. I'm like, well, something's been here, and I don't think a gully dwarf is going to be smart enough to figure out how to flip a car. So now they're concerned, what if it's not just gullies here anymore? Now the weapons come out. They may not, what weapons they have may not have magical abilities, but they're still razor sharp and treated really well. And they're going to be able to at least physically do some things here. Artemis, probably the least useful in a, in a physical combat. Even she knows how to use her quarterstaff and her whip, because she has a whip. That's her secondary weapon. I, I think I've mentioned that in the past. Those are the two things she uses. She can, she can still swing a stick and do something, but... They have to go on. You know, they're they're looking where you're going to find a gem hidden in all of this without any magical ability. They have to find someone to help them. And they're hoping the gullies may have come across it because they're scroungers. They like shiny things, pretty things, much like a kender or somebody would. So while they may not see it for the value of it, they may not realize it's a magical gem, they may think it's a pretty stone. Like maybe someone's seen it. They could find it. And that was their goal, their hope, was to get here and find some of the gullies. Now, you remember when they were here last time, they wanted to leave their little friend Moog here. Moog was... They, the gullies had 
realized that Moog, after traveling with them, was a little bit more world-weary and knowledgeable than they were. And asked him to stay and, and teach them to be warriors and heroes like that. But then instead, Moog rallied several thousand of them and marched them into the battle in the Valley of Sacrifice, where, unfortunately, many of the Gully Dwarves were lost. They didn't know how to fight. They just ran in there and were more of a hindrance than anything else. But as we know, poor Moog died in that battle before the Citadel fell. So who could be leading them now? And obviously, not humans. Something smart here. So they, they at this point, are having to squeeze through these cars because there's, there's space to get between them. Darsh is the one that has the hardest problem, of course. Um, but for Dandy, it's still pretty easy. For someone small... He could get through pretty easily. Someone big like Darsh, it's, it's harder. And he actually has to climb up and over a couple of them. Again, him being his height, it's not as bad for him. Even a car on its side, Darsh is at, what, eight feet tall or more. At the, I think he's, even before Horns, I think he was at seven foot eight. So I mean, he's not going to have a big time hurling himself over one of these vehicles. But it's definitely irritating. Darsh does just that. Jumps right over the car. And lands on the ground. And then just keeps on falling. His friends, squeezing through the vehicles, hear Darsh call out in shock. They try to hurry through, but as as they come through the other sides of these sideways cars, they hear a loud clicking and popping noise. And suddenly they're all hurled to the ground. Something heavy lands on top of them. Some kind of net, if you will, with heavy weights around the edges, pulling them down. They all fall. And as they begin to try to flip over and get out from underneath of it, there's the sound of footsteps and then thunks as each one of them is knocked unconscious. I smile because I remember when this actually happened. I remember the painstaking preparations made to try to keep something like this from happening. And then the characters did exactly what I needed them to <laughs> to fall into this. It was, it was very lucky on my part. Darsh, as I mentioned, fell not a long distance but enough that he wasn't expecting it. And he's winded. And he looks up, and all he sees is a couple great big rocks coming down at him, and then he's out as well. <clears throat> Excuse me. It's funny, because I'm looking at Sage's post, super uh, sticker from earlier there. Super chat where it says, that's not a boulder, it's a rock. <laughs> I saw that when that came out, and I'm like, how prophetic <laughs> some of this is going to be today. Um, <laughs> so, they wake up, of course, eventually. And they find themselves in some kind of strange building. Now, of course, I say strange building, it's strange to them. To us, it would look like a regular building, because they're inside of a kind of building. But they're in some kind of room. And there is literally some type of bright light shining in their faces. And they're all tied sitting on the ground 
Their hands are tied behind them. Their feet are tied very well. Darsh chains. Immediately, flexing his great strength, the chains strained, but held. Even though they looked a little old, they're relatively decent condition. And that's when a, a figure comes walking out of the peripheral in front of them. The man, or should I say gully dwarf in front of them, is clearly a gully dwarf. Short, but unlike any gully dwarf they've seen before. His hair is cut into a sharp mohawk. And there's paint or tattooing on his faces. He's wearing some type of leather belts where he actually has several weapons, knives and a small war hammer on one side leather strappings that clearly could hold some other type of weapon on his back and he's muscular he's cut, you've never seen a gully dwarf like this before who are you? he says firmly and confidently Again, not features you'd normally find in a gully dwarf. Where are we, says Artemis? I, I, I don't know. I ask, who are you? Answer question, or be punished. Darth's like, listen here, you little turd. I'm going to... And that's all he gets out before suddenly his body is racked with pain as a sizzling, crackling, electrical kind of sound is heard, and his back, something is pressed against it, and his body just hemorrhages. It lasts only a couple seconds, but to him, feels a lot longer. And he, even though he's tied up, he kind of falls back down into a laying position, gasping for air. Mercy, of course, gets immediately angry. Pissed off, you could say. And... Yells, Dandy yells, leave him alone. You know, Dandy's that's, that's her big buddy there. He says, I ask you one more time. Who are you? Why are you here? Artemis says, we don't mean you any harm. My name is Artemis. Well, she didn't put her hand up. She's tied up. She goes, My name is Artemis. <clears throat> the lady on this side of me is Mercy. The Kender is Dandy, and the Minotaur's name is Darsh. We've some of us have been here. I've been here before, or who's it? Mar Mercy and Artemis. Yes, because I we've Mercy and I, we've been here before. We were friends of Moog, and his eyes squint. He goes, "You not say that name. You not say that name, and you lie." people you say you are dead. Who are you? And why are you here? Artemis is a little flustered. She's not sure what to say. Mercy, upset, is trying to stay calm and let Artemis do the talking. She's usually a little better in these situations. Very elegant, elven voice and such. But it's Darsh struggled back up to a sitting position. But his wind is still out of him. He's having a bit of a hard time breathing. But, you know, that happens when you get electrocuted. 
It's Dandy's the only one that notices that each time the gully's asking a question, he then looks over their head for a moment to something behind them before looking back. She doesn't say anything, but she notices this. Artemis says, I assure you, I shouldn't put her in she's tied up. I assure you we're say, we are who we say we are. We did not die, and we have been your friends in the past, and we mean you no harm now. We're looking for something, an item, a small stone, and we believe it may be somewhere here in your city. We're just looking for this small stone, and then we're going to leave. We don't mean any harm to you or your people. We want nothing else from you. Danny notices again. His eyes flicker up for just a moment before looking back. He says, I no believe you. I was there. I saw you die. Castle fall. Many die. You inside. You not come out. I ask one last time, who are you? Truth. Or I kill you. Companions are in a pickle. How do you convince Segullidorp you're who you say you are when he firmly believes that you are dead? It was in that, <laughs> I love, it was in that moment that young woman who is playing Artemis said something I wasn't expecting, but it was perfect. She goes, we know what you saw, but after we fell, there was a demigod named Zoltan. And that's all she got to say before she heard from her. Oh, nine hells, I hate that guy. They're shut by that. Gullydorf sets back a little shocked. The pure anger and animosity in that voice. And they hear footsteps coming around again. This one's slightly heavier, but not by much. As Fig the Gnome Warrior comes to stand before them. Now, if you don't remember Fig... Fig was part of their original party, one of their friends. A gnome warrior who from a very early age was raised by dwarves. So while he's a gnome, he acts much more dwarven-like. But he still has the instincts of a tinker gnome, which is what he, his family was. Very smart guy. Fig looks at them for a moment and then smiles. And he waves and they can feel someone removing, un cutting their bindings, or in Darsh's turn, unlocking the chains. And then Darsh, of course, immediately pops up and you hear scurrying feet go all over the place except for Fig and the one little gully next to him. This Mad Max-looking gully. That's what these gullies look like for the way. Fig very much looking the same way at this point. They can see Fig has some of the same tattooing and such on him. Because that's how Fig a lot of times walked. He didn't wear a shirt. He would just the leather straps, his war hammer, and so on and so forth. And he does generally smile as he steps in. And Dandy steps forward and says, Figgy! And even though he's nervous knowing what Dandy, 
He can't help but smile as he gives her a hug. Hello. You see, when the Citadel fell, Fig survived. He didn't die. He was injured pretty badly. His arm was broken. His leg was broken. He had deep cuts and such in him. Concussion. But he managed to survive and he crawled from the rubble. As, you know, could happen. And as he did, several gully dwarves were there who helped him stand. They recognized him. This was the man who raised Moog. Well, they believed, even though Moog was only in a short period of time. And the battle was still going on to some degree, although not as much. Most of the monster types, if you will, the orcs and the goblins and such, they were trying to run away, and the, the different military groups were trying to do their thing, save their people, help the injured, while still making sure that they took out as many of the bad guys as they could. But pretty much everybody ignored the gully dwarves, except for Fig. Because while he searched the rubble with what the gullies that just continued to come to him, as here's a, a gully sees a group of gullies, I guess I'll go with the groups. They're not that bright. They follow whoever. They would come over and they helped him search and they couldn't find the bodies of any of his friends. But they did find the body of Moog. Believing that his friends could not have survived and seeing the different human forces eventually gathering up and leaving and just the remaining gully dwarf standing there not knowing what to do. In that moment he decided he, he would at least make sure that he got them home. That they, they deserved that. And he would take the body of his lad Moog with him and see that he was, he was buried there. So he gathered all the gullies that were alive and they helped the ones that were injured and they gathered what few or what dead they could find. Again, you understand a large amount of the battlefield was crushed by rock at this point. So many bodies weren't found. He gathered them up and did his best to, to lead them. They, they didn't know what to do, but they knew him from when he was there before. They followed Moog because he'd been trained by them. So he followed, they followed Fig. And it was a long and difficult journey for them. There were no supplies. Trying to find food on the way. Gully dwarves, excellent at scrounging, though. The odd bunny, the odd rat here and there. Berries, whatever. And gully dwarves, incredibly strong, strong constitutions. They can live off stuff most people would not consider eating them. But they did manage to make enough that they were able to make their way back to New Gullyville. Once they got there, of course, there were still many more gullies there. They didn't bring them all. There were way more gully dwarves there than the characters ever realized. Several thousand beyond what came to the battlefield, which is a good couple thousand, what Moog could gather up in a short period of time. And some of them living as separate communities, different groups, not really ward each other, but almost like different large families living in different parts of the city. Getting there, Fig was in no good shape himself. There's no healers there. He had no magic to help him. Splinting his own wounds and doing the best he could, he said he decided he would stay to rest at least until he was healthy enough to travel. But as he was there healing, the gullies kept coming, asking, what should we do now? Well, we need to bury the dead. Okay, how do we do that? He showed them. Well, what do we do now? 
Well, you need to make sure you're protecting yourself. There's a lot of army out there. Some of those creatures may come this direction. You don't want to get attacked. Okay, how do we do that? Well, you'll need weapons. Okay, how do we do... And, Darsh, and Fig found that he was teaching them things. And in many ways, they weren't as, as dumb as people thought they were. They weren't book smart. But if you taught them a simple action, they could learn that. And sometimes they could get very good at it. You could teach them a lot of things. You're not going to teach them math. Teach them biology. But you could teach them to make a weapon. You teach them to sharpen a stick. Teach them to swing a hammer and aim for the middle of whatever you're swinging at. And before he knew it, Fig was looked at as the leader. And more of these communities came together hearing that, hey, here's someone teaching how to live, how to protect themselves. Well, we want that too. They're eating better. He's trying to teach them the bay. They can't really farm, but he can teach them a bit better at foraging. Maybe keeping something, instead of killing an animal and, and eating it, keeping it and breeding it to make more, even if it's something as simple as a rat. Find a chicken here and there, raise some chicken, whatever the case may be. The basic stuff he was teaching them, but that basic stuff was so beyond anything that anyone had ever been willing to help them learn in the past that they took to it especially someone who's going to protect him. And again, someone not that much physically larger than themselves. Before he knew it, Fig was literally king of the gullies. It was never an official proclamation. No one gave him a crown. It just was taken that I'm in charge. People do what I say. And Fig saw in the gullies much what the dwarves saw in him when he was found. Here is some group, here's a group of people that are weak, that need help, need protected, we're going to take them in. And he felt good about it. He felt, hey, I'm, I'm actually doing something. I feel like I'm at home. I'm not just wandering around on some damn god's quests or looking for some magical this or that. I'm helping people live. I'm teaching them things they need. I'm being a leader. And he was good at it. And he'd been doing that ever since. And so he taught them how to make traps, how to protect themselves. How to use basic, basic engineering stuff. How to flip a car. Again, he's a tinker gnome at heart. They wouldn't, you know, he couldn't say, here, do this. Now go do it over there. He has to watch when you lift this stick. Push on this, push on that. They're good at taking orders. Especially considering he helped them get fed. Helped keep them safe. Kept them warm. Started gathering things like blankets, making sure everybody has things. Started finding buildings, people that they can live in to be more of a community type. And it was going very well. He had his own little small gully dwarf army. Not all of them were armed in weapons, of course. Only some of them had that type of skill. Some had skills in other ways. Because again, they can't learn multiple things. But the ones that he learned had any basic skill or any type of courage at all, he made those his warriors. Those are the ones he taught to fight. Those are the ones that patrolled the borders, came to tell him when anything was coming. The ones he, you know, using old batteries, figured out how to use electricity from a battery and shock somebody. He's got some interesting traps laid about there that maybe we'll hear about in the future. But that was Fig. Still has his hammer. Still has his hammer that was... It doesn't have any magical powers here, of course, but it was forged by the dwarves that raised him, and he's got that. And after telling them the story, he's like... And so that damn god, or damn, the day of gray man's got you out looking for more trinkets. What is it you're looking for this time? 
Artemis shows him her staff with the gem and goes, this is the gem, and explains their side of the story, what they've been doing, how the magical artifacts they'd all been looking for are now inside this pocket of existence that they need all the gems to get, that they've already found a few of them, they live in Paxawal, these are the adventures they've had. Artemis doesn't mention the dude she had a conversation with a few days ago. Keeps that to herself. But pretty much everything else they say. We've got several of them. They're in the chest of holding. We'd show you, but we can't open the chest. He's like, I understand. He's like, well, this is a big place. This is a very, very large city. And it's all ruins. There could be a, a million of those stones buried in here somewhere. And you'd never find them. But if you're saying that the goddess of light herself sent you here, I gotta believe that it's not buried where it can't be found. It's gotta be findable. Or else why would the god even bother sending you here? The character's like, oh, that makes that makes good sense, yes. He's like, let me look in our treasury and see if we've found it. And they're like, you have a treasury? He goes, yes. I have quite an extensive treasury. You'd be surprised. What type of wealth can be found in a city this large that's fallen? And when I have... my Me and my people are small enough to fit into places that most of you never could. There's jewelry stores in New York. There are banks. And while they may not have... Dollar bills don't mean anything to them. There could be other forms of coins and such. That even though you find a... To us would be a bunch of dimes. To them that looks like a coin. May not actually have silver or gold in it. But it may be hard for them to tell still a coin, they might value that. So I'm going to look in our treasury. Let me take a look, see if I can find anything like that. Thank you, Gentoo, for the follow. I appreciate that. Appreciate you coming by. He says, let me take a look. Just hang out here for a little while. No one's going to bother you. I'll have them bring you something to eat. Just eat it. Don't ask what it is. I'll have them bring you something to eat. Some clean water to drink. We don't have much beyond water here. We have some some alcohol. He looks at Darcy and goes, I got something I think you'll like. Let me dig out that. We'll bring you some water for now. But let me see what I can do. He's gone for a while. Some more gullies come in. Now, the gullies that come in after this are always escorted by one or two of the Mad Max-looking gully dwarves. Um, but the other ones look more regular, but with slightly better clothing. Definitely a hodgepodge of different clothing that have been sewn and put together, but not falling apart or full of holes, much sturdier looking. And they come in smiling and bring him plate. They bring them plates of meat and vegetables, mostly turnips and potatoes, maybe some celery. Uh, these are things that they are able to grow from that are growing still here wildly. You can imagine you walk into a, what used to be a grocery store, potato, and it's all caved in in half dirt now. Potatoes could probably still grow in there. Something very easy to farm. You could, if you had a little bit of farm. They did that. Potatoes is definitely a staple of their diet. They don't ask where the meat came from. It's not super great tasting. It's clearly not seasoned in any way, but it's cooked. It does fill their belly and it doesn't make them vomit. So they eat what food is brought to them. After a couple of hours, Fig comes back and says, I don't have your stone. And I'm really sorry for that. We don't have it. But I might know where it is. Okay, cool. He goes, We gather gems and jewelry and things like that which could be of value to other races. 
They don't mean much to us here. But they are things that others might trade for. A ways to the north, once you're outside of, he kind of smiles a little bit, my lands, back where magic starts again, there's a great forest. It actually kind of, if you were to look at this on a map, it probably looked like a hat on top of this almost perfect circle that is the dead magic zone. And for the record, dead magic zones are always a perfect circle, or I should say globe, up and down like a sphere. Um, but the size can be different. But it's always that way. They're not odd-shaped. They're always spherical. There's a center point of that. But to the north, there's a, there's a forest. And early on, once I was healed enough to travel, I thought maybe in the forest, if we were careful, we could find some foods such. And we traveled there, and what we found was that there was a race of centaurs living in that forest. It was their forest. They didn't take kindly upon us tramping around. As you can imagine, my guys, not sure what to do, been trained a little bit, immediately thought they had to fight. Luckily, we were able to calm that down. We stepped, we, we, we rushed back into our home and the centaurs stopped. They wouldn't pass into the dead magic zone. I struck up a conversation with, with them from there explained that we weren't looking travel, that we lived in here, we were happy in here, we were just looking for some foodstuffs. Talking, realized that maybe we could trade. So every so often, we trade with the centaurs for different items, and we give them wealth and stuff that we don't need here, but is more valuable there. One of the things they like are gems and jewelry. It's possible I've given them your stone. I don't remember it, I normally don't care. I just put a handful into... I've got like a bu several say buckets worth of gems of stones of some kind. And some of them don't even look like they're real stones, but they look like they're real stones, if you understand what I'm saying. That's how Fig says it. It looks just like a real gem, but it's almost like a really hard glass. But it looks authentic. He was raised by dwarves, so he's going to be able to see a fake diamond a little bit easier than the average person. He goes, but a lot of times they're attached to gold and silver... And so, you know, they like that too. So I just grab a certain amount and say, here's a trade. They give us food, clothing, sometimes small animals like rabbits and things. We get a lot of our, our, our first few animals came from them, which has been a struggle to convince my guys not to eat them right out, but to breed them so we can eat later. It, it's still working on that, but we're getting there. It's very possible that the centaurs have your stone. Now, they know us. We're amicable. We go up there if we, if we, my guys go up there and, you know, they take a load of whatever. They bring back whatever they're given. We don't ask too much. They don't ask what they're getting. We give them the bag or the, you know, chest of what we're giving. They give us a couple stacks of, could be cloth, could be candles, could be things that we can use. We take it. You know, so far, I've never felt cheated and they've not had any said anything that they feel as well. So it's very possible that the centaurs have your stone. To me, it would have just been a stone. It's not magical here. I don't know if they'll know what it is or what it can do. But that would be the, the best thing that I could recommend because you could spend the rest of your lives. And he points at Artemis. He goes, even you. And 
you won't search one millionth of the land that it could be hidden here. That I think is your your best your best course of action. And they're like, wow, that's well. I mean, it makes sense. I mean, if your gems and wealth are what you send up there, and it looks these do look like they'd be valuable gems. Um, that makes sense. I guess that would be the best place for us to go. And they kind of look at each other and, and they're like, will, will you be coming with us, Fig? Fig smiles and shakes his head and says, this is my home now. This is where I live. I'm happy to help you when I can, but these are my people and I've got to take care of them. I won't even be traveling with you to the north. I'll send some of my guys. They're the ones that normally head up there. We'll be going a little earlier than the centaurs will be expecting, but if we show up early, they're going to know you're there pretty quickly. Um, but if you just walk up there yourself, you might get hurt. I'll send some of my guys with you. They'll lead you up there, and them being with you will kind of speak towards that you're being sent for me. He goes, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll jot something down. They can read comments, so I'll jot something down on, on some paper we got from them. They did give us paper and ink. And I can send something up as a letter. And that's what he normally does. Fig doesn't go himself. His leg never healed perfectly well. So he has a bit of a limp now. And when it gets really cold out, it, it hurts him some. His arm healed pretty well, but his leg bothers him. It was a pretty bad break. And without any real healing, it, it didn't heal completely straight. So he doesn't make the long journeys anymore. He just sends his guys, some of his folks. When he says his guys, they're not all male. Male and female, Mad Max-looking people. Calls him his guys. He goes, I send my guys up there. Um, they'll take you there. He goes, Jax! He points to the Mohawk guy who was interrogating them earlier. He goes, Jax is my number one. He he kind of helps me out when I do. He makes these trips. Jax will escort you and he'll bring a couple others um, and they'll travel with you on, until you're done up there. And then they can bring you back down here or if you decide to go off, they'll, they can find their way back just fine. Um, I don't have a lot in the way of supplies I can send you. Um, but I can give you some of the stuff out of the treasury, so maybe with that you can barter with them to get your gem back. I don't know, you know, hey, I know we gave you a gem, but I'll give you a whole bag of those for that one back. He goes, that, that, that might work. He goes, I have no problem giving you the kind of stuff that they like. So I'll see to that. Spend the night here. We've already got your horses. And... For now, anyways, I've convinced everyone not to eat them, so they should be fine. If you don't come back through this way, I'll do my best to get them back to your people, or at least see that they're, you know, not lunch. We'll do our best to make sure they're treated well. He goes, to be honest, having a horse sometimes wouldn't be that bad, I'll tell you. But he goes, yeah, we'll, we'll take care of them for you, because you're definitely not going to be able to take your horse. The, the land is even harder to travel through the north. We've got some paths we found you can go that way. So they agree. They spend the night there in that building. He Fig says, we're going to keep you here. And for the record, he was on the other side of a two-way glass. It's an old police station. Uh, it was actually an interrogation room. Fig really liked that two-way glass once he realized what it could do. Um, but he uh, says, you stay here. I'd rather you not be out mingling with my folks because most of them will be pretty scared and I would rather not... He kind of thinks we're saying this. I'd rather not them become accustomed to you. You understand, folks like us normally aren't going to be kind to my people like we are. And so someone looking like you coming through here normally is going to be a threat. I would rather they still view them as that for their own safety. I hope you understand. And like, 
No, no. Well, we can understand that. I mean, they all know that gully dwarves have been horribly abused through history. No one, and even even the elves and Minotaur. I mean, they all all their people are guilty of it at some point. Um, so, like, no, we understand. We'll stay here and take whatever help you can, and and we're happy that you found yourself a place, Fig. Um, should you ever need us, of course, we are now living in Paxawal. Um, if you were to come to the northern th- and, and and send a missive to us. Um, they would make sure that it got to us and we'd be here if you ever need us at all. And Fig appreciates that and says, thank you. Um, he goes, but he would rather that... He goes, yeah, I don't think I'll be making that trip and I think it would be more beneficial to me if you made sure that people didn't know how things are here. When you return to your, your home and you talk to your kingdom and your temple people, I'd rather you say that it's just very inhospitable here and that the gully doors are barely scratching out a living. It'd be best that they not know about anything like what we found, the wealth, and that we're surviving. Because anytime somebody hears that somebody has something, there's always going to be someone out there who wants to take it away from them. And I would rather keep my folks safe by the world being ignorant of their existence. Characters agree and say, yeah, it's a good idea. We'll definitely do that. So they spend the night there. The next day, Fig sees them off. Jax and uh, three other Mad Max-looking gullies all with some type of shaved head, mohawky looking kind of things, or just completely bald like Fig, all tattooed up. Um, that's become a, a thing of uh, kind of their stature, the, the tattooed Mad Max. You know that they're one of Fig's fighters when they're looking like that. But they go ahead and they begin their process of heading to the north. It's uh, luckily where they're at now, they're actually taking a good distance into the city, which wasn't easy for the for the gullies to drag Darsh. Fortunately, the horses helped. That's one reason why they went and got the horses. Um, but they managed to get them in there. It's only going to take a few hours to get to the edge of the northern forest, or the forest of the north. But that's where they're going to travel. And they're going to see if they can wheel and deal with some centaurs in order to get what would be the next stone. But we're going to talk about that next time. We're almost at the two-hour mark. I'm gonna, I'd am gonna. i rather cut it just a shy early instead of get started into a next section of the story and then have to cut it in what would not be a good stopping point. Uh, so I think that this is a good point to go ahead and call that a stop. Um, so two weeks from now, on Sunday at 8 p.m. Eastern, we will have the next episode, and that's where our party will be traveling into the Kingdom of the Centaurs, or the Centaur Forest, if you will. And they will be getting into a whole different sort of adventure up there. So I'm pretty excited to introduce you to that. But I was very happy to introduce you to a certain mysterious gentleman and introduce you to the arch. I'm going to go with that name again. Arch underneath the uh, Valley of Sacrifice and New Gullyville and King Fig. Uh, Because this also gives the allies, the party, hope that if Fig survived, and clearly Zarin survived until they had to kill him, and they tell when they told that part to Fig, Fig was like, well, I never really trusted the guy. Sorry that I had to happen, but, you know, I'm not, not really going to shed a lot of tears there. <laughs> but he also gives them hope that maybe, maybe, Shadow and Willow were out there too, which are the other two members of their group that are, at this point, currently unaccounted for, as well as Michael, who was the uh, human knight and dandy love interest of the first section of this story. 
hopefully maybe he survived as well. So, um, and then we know Rafe already survived. He was already up in there. So that's good. So more people are surviving. That's a good sign. Maybe all the ones that dead Zoltan brought back. So hopefully that would be the case. We'll find out eventually. But yeah, the centaur section of the story is going to be pretty cool. I've got some, uh, actually, I think I may even have a map to show you from that one. I'm, I'm right now just getting into within the next episode or the one after that, I'm actually going to be getting into scripted D&D, which means, I've said this many times, a lot of the story I've told up to this point, all the books and papers and maps I had from that were destroyed in a flooding basement. We're almost to the point where I have everything from that point moving on still saved. So we're almost to the point where I'm going to actually start reading you bits and pieces of the same thing that I read to the characters. So little snippets of, you walk into a room and blah, 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 blah. You're actually going to get some of the same exact info that they got as they got it, which I think is going to be really, really cool. I think it should be bring a bit more of a D&D feel to this, uh, because then we'll be getting to some more specifics, such as some of the battles and the monsters they fought. A lot of those things, it's hard to remember which battle was where up until this point, but we're at the point where I'm going to get to uh, be able to bring out some specifics. I'm very excited about that. So let's do a little quick cleanup there. So if you were hanging out today and you enjoyed yourself, thank you very much for coming by. I appreciate it. Please click like if you haven't already, but more importantly, please remember to hit subscribe. That way you can see all my videos, tutorials, and streams as they come out. Uh, you can also go to my website, onlydraven.com. Uh, if you go there at the very top, there's a link that'll take you to our Discord. Join up our Discord. We talk about Minecraft, video games. We've got some about health, uh, charity work, where we work with Extra Life, as well as there's some dedicated to Merge World. So if you like D&D and stuff, I'd love to talk to you about D&D and stuff. And maybe if you have questions about the story, swing on in. If you're listening to this later, same information. If you're listening to this on iTunes, come on by and join up the Discord. It's very active. We've got a lot of great people. I'd love to talk to you about the story if you have questions and about the characters and different things like that. be happy to share that with you. Uh, you'll also find links to all my socials. Uh, specifically, I recommend Twitter. Uh, Twitter is at OnlyDraven. If you follow me on there, I'm putting out more and more stuff and trying to be more active on uh, Twitter. So definitely keep an eye out for Twitter if you're going to follow any of them. Uh, but you also find links to all my streaming schedules, stories, and such like that. Um, we also have some brand new stuff on the ODG store. I'd like to show you here real quick. Uh, pop these up real quick. We've got a brand new art print done by our artist Shadowcaz, who does all the channel art. Uh, this is the new one. Uh, the name of this design is called Dravencraft. If you go to the OG, ODG store, you'll find different cuts of shirts. Uh, there's, uh, what is it? there's different cuts of shirts. There's stickers. There's also the mugs as well as some Merge World merch and things there as well. If you have any questions or something you'd like to see on the store, let me know. Throw it in the comments. I can look to putting it together for you. Um, but we got some great stuff there. And for those of you that are part of the membership program, those of you that are Draven's Dragons, remember you get a 10% discount on that. If you're not sure where to find that code, please reach out to myself or any of the mods on the Discord. Um, and we will be happy to get you that information. Um, yeah, you guys get a 10% discount. Cumulative, and anything goes on sale, it's on top of that. There's a lot of great perks that come with the uh, membership program, so I do recommend checking it out. If you click the Join button on my YouTube channel on any of the pages, it'll show you all the different perks and such that come with that membership. Uh, it's a monthly thing, and then uh, anytime I come out with new perks, I just keep adding them to that same level. So you're not going to see higher, more expensive ones to unlock stuff later. It's just one, you get everything I can think of. Um, but I think that's going to do us for today. Again, thank you all very much for coming by and listening to my story today. I really, really appreciate it. Uh, we're getting to some seriously meaty stuff, and I'm excited to get to share that with you. Um, 
So thank you all for coming by. Uh, special thanks to all my dragons. Thank you very much for uh, being part of the program and helping me keep everything up and running. And on top of that, extra special thanks to my moderators, Neon, Gus, and James. You guys help me keep everything on track. So I really appreciate that, everyone. Thank you all for coming back. Tomorrow night, we'll be streaming Sky Factory 3 at 8 p.m. Eastern. So swing on by, and we'll see some more Minecraft. But that is going to do us for today. Thanks, everybody, for watching. Have yourselves a great day.